What don't we know about the early 1900s? 1901 and 2 and 3 and up to 14, we can feel about only very dimly. Leisure and richness and space and motor veils and the bravery of those who flew in the earliest aeroplanes impress us. But we can't feel about those years, really. Not in the way we feel about the war. There, we are conscious. It requires an effort to realise the necessities, pleasures, colossal bad taste, romance, trust, suspicion, pride of those years. The war is forced on us. Horror is so actual. But those years, the years of our cousin's youth, avoid us and will not be known. We almost forget how deeply that youth was influenced by the generation that got it. Influenced and prescribed for in a way we can't know about. So much and such nearly complete power was in those elder hands. Over the trivialities or fatalities of life, our cousins and aunts accepted so much and really managed it with admirable smoothness and dignity. Pain they endured and accepted. Endless chaperonage. Supervision of their correspondence. The fact that mother knew best. That father says so. That there is no more to be said on the subject, they accepted. They accepted their leisure without boredom. They accepted having occupations found for this leisure. They accepted trivialities and treated them with that carefulness and detail which rounds such perfect smallness and makes it an acceptable part of life. With all this acceptance, they could preserve a death-like romantical obstinacy where their hearts were concerned. They had a true romantical outlook, infinitely less destructible than the quick love encounters we so often know. On absence, their romances throve. They were not afraid of sentimentality. They were not afraid of being thought girlish. They never needed to explain their emotions to themselves or to their friends. The indecency of knowing what it was all about would have been appalling to them. They didn't want to know. The mystery and the thrill enough and most secretly their own. Hence much rapture and much failure, and a certain dignity too. This outward smoothness of life, which at all costs they struggled to achieve, was a politeness of living which we may envy them. Eleven o'clock? More than bedtime? Lady Charlotte French McGrath had four daughters, and at these words Muriel immediately folded up her work. Enid ceased tracing a picture of a stag's head into her album called Sunlight and Shadow. Violet gathered up the cards with which she and her father had been playing piquet, and only Diana, little Diana, showed no speed in closing her book. Really, Mother might not have spoken. Bedtime, I think, Diana. Diana shut her book guiltily, and was the first of the four to kiss her father goodnight. Ha, he said, ha ha, bedtime. Bedtime, I suppose. Good night, my dear. Candles now, let me see. Candles. He crossed the room to that small dark table where immemorially the candlesticks were set out and lit the five candles. Giving each daughter a kiss and a candlestick and the same to his wife, he followed them with a very satisfied eye as they went out of the door. 
crossed the hall one behind another, and mounted the stairs in the same pretty succession. Muriel first with her fluffy brown hair, thin neck and little birdie body. Poor little Muriel, time she was finding a husband. Twenty-four, and nothing satisfactory turning up yet. Enid, then, with her purple eyes, deep voice and dark hair. She would have been a beauty if Violet had not come after her. And Violet was an Edwardian classic. Skin like shells and peaches, bosom like the prow of a ship, smooth thighs, features of bland and simple beauty, and a head crowned by obedient golden hair and unhampered by brains. A satisfactory daughter. And then Diana, little Diana. There was not much of the Edwardian classic about Diana. Her mother could not find her very satisfactory, since she had neither the charm nor the biddable disposition of her elder sisters.